heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sin always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we should have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Now, as we looked here last week, we looked at verse 13 dealing with that Paul is, is expressing his, his thankfulness and his gratitude that they received the Word of God as the Word of God, that they received the, their preaching and their teaching, not as just the, the thoughts of Paul or Silas or Timothy, not just their ideology, not just as something that they made up, but rather when they spoke, they spoke with authority because these men preached the Word of God. They preached it by the power of the Spirit of God, as chapter 1 had told us. And that the church at Thessalonica, those new believers, had received the Word of God by faith, by the power of the Holy Ghost, that applied the truth to their heart, that convicted them of sin, that drew them to Christ. And then as well, we find that he expresses this uh, idea that the Word of God is effectually working in those that believe. Uh, The Word of God is always at work, and the greatest work for every believer is the Word of God. The Word produces our work. The the Word is the the motivation of our work. Uh, Everything that we do must be founded upon the Word of God. This is why when we have these banners up, you can notice, Each one of them. You know what they have? A Bible verse. Why? Because we stand for the Bible. These aren't just some sort of words that are thrown around willy-nilly, but these are things that are biblically based, uh, biblically founded, that that biblically ground us and root us and unite us together uh, for us to be who we are called to be as the church of God. That's what makes a church a church. Now, here as we get into verse 14, we're going to see that Paul is thankful that they received the word and the work of the word in their life was that the church of Thessalonica endured persecution. Now, here's what the word does. It effectually does a work, as he said in verse 13, right? Now, here in verse 14, he says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Now, this is important here. He's building upon what he had already said in verse 13, that when you receive the word of God, that the Word of God begins to do a work in you. And one of the first fruits of the work of the Word is that it allows you to suffer persecution. It allows you to suffer well. Now, you and I don't like this idea of suffering. There's not a one of us who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I want to have a terrible day today. Right? No one wakes up and says, you know what, today I just feel like getting sick as a dog. Nobody says that. No one woke up this morning and said, you know, I sure do hope I catch the flu. No one woke up this morning and said, I sure do hope someone is there at church to persecute us. Or I sure hope that the the doors get closed and we get banned from meeting. Nobody said that this morning. I know I certainly didn't. I know you didn't either. None of us want persecution. None of us want suffering. But yet, the Bible expressly shows us that those who follow the Lord, those who live by faith, always see suffering and persecution in their life. As a matter of fact, Paul had told Timothy that all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is a fact 
that suffering and persecution comes with the Christian life. This is why today what has been promoted as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is so wicked and so vile. There are countless people, if you go into the average Christian bookstore, or if you go online, or maybe if you go into a Barnes & Noble and you look at the uh, alleged Christian section that has about this much good authors and then the rest is uh, about junk, to be honest with you, what you're going to find is the vast majority of people who are peddling Christianity are peddling health, wealth, and prosperity. That God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and, 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 and so just blessed in this world. Does the Lord want to bless us? Yes. Does He say that He's going to give us boats and trucks and big houses and big bank accounts no he says to his followers if any man will come after me he must deny himself pick up his cross daily and follow me does that sound like health wealth and prosperity no it sounds like surrender death to self death to the world it sounds like one who is going to even perhaps die for the cause of christ the early church was very prepared to do so because many of them from the very founding of the church began to face persecution by this point, Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy had already been persecuted. If you remember the first time that they came to Thessalonica, and as they're writing here, they reminded them that we didn't come with flattery. We didn't come for our own motivation. As a matter of fact, we came and we preached even though we were persecuted before we came there, when they were there at Philippi, and then uh, during when they were at Thessalonica, which is why they had to send them on, and then they go to the Bereans, and then uh, Paul finds himself in Corinth, and, and all these things. Now, now look at this. When Paul preached, when Silas and Timothy preached, when, when the gospel went forth, you know what else went forth? Persecution. What you find throughout the book of Acts is certainly the prophecy and the, what, God had, what Christ had told his disciples that you're going to be my witnesses uh, to Judea, Samaria, under uh, uh, the most parts of the world. Like, this gospel's going forth. It's going out. It's starting here in Jerusalem, and it's going to Judea, Samaria, and the most parts. This sort of ripple effect, if you will. What he is showing them, though, as you read through the book of Acts, is that every time that you find the gospel going forth, you know the first time that it really goes forth from Jerusalem? Persecution. Persecution's what drove it. You can go look in the book of Acts. Stephen gets persecuted immediately after the start of the next chapter. You know what it talks about? That those who were a part of the church, the everyday average Christians who began to be persecuted, they went forth, and as they went forth, they preached the gospel. They preached it with their mouths, they preached it with their lives. They were walking billboards for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were walking billboards with the good news, always abounding on the tips of their tongue, on the fronts of their minds, on their feet as they walked, everywhere that they went. All that their hands found to do was for the sake of the gospel. And they knew that persecution would come, and yet they labored anyways. Now, this is what we're dealing with here in verse 14. Green writes, verse 14 presents one of the evidences of their reception of the word of God the persecutions they endured. As part of the fundamental instruction of the church, Paul and his companions had taught the Thessalonians the theology of suffering, and as they had taught, so it happened. Now Paul adds that what the church was enduring was the common experience of the churches in Judea as well. If you think in your suffering that you are the only one suffering, then you don't understand suffering. Suffering happens not just to you and to me. It hardly happens to you and to me, to be honest, for, for our for our testimony's sake. It happens to plenty who are in persecuted countries and nations right now. There are churches right now that are meeting underground. There are churches who um, can, cannot gather freely like you and I can today. Will there come a day in this nation where that might happen? It very well may. Nevertheless, what we are told is that we continue to meet, we continue to praise God, we continue to preach the gospel. That's what we're called to do. That is the true Christian life. And here's 
the deal. What Paul is getting at is you know that their faith is real because they endured persecution. If Jesus did not literally die and raise from the dead, do you think his disciples, who would be the apostles, would die for such? Do you think they would die for a lie? Let me ask you, if you knew something was a lie, would you die for it? I'm not. If you knew something was a lie, would you die for it? No. But because this is the truth of God, because this is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believed, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, therefore we should not be ashamed. We should all the more preach the gospel as persecution comes. The Lord uses suffering in our life. And what we find here is what others have called throughout the centuries the theology of suffering, the theology of the cross. This is the idea that the Christian life is not one of peaches and cream and baskets of roses and all this glory on this earth, but rather it is one of suffering. Jesus talks about this in His earthly ministry as He's preaching about this, and He says, have you counted the cost? Does any man buy a piece of land and start building without ever counting the cost, right? If you're going to build a house, do you just start building without figuring out if you got the funds to do it? Now, there is a cost to Christianity, and perhaps one of the things that we have lost in our day is this idea that we are destined to suffer for Christ's sake. Let's be honest here. Here in America, we've had it very easy for a very long time. As expensive as gas and as difficult as inflation can be, as difficult as things might look today, this is nothing compared to what much of the rest of the world is dealing with. We have for so long been comfortable that we've become complacent. We have lost what it means to be hated. It has been said that perhaps one of the, um, one of the dangers of today or one of the worst things today or the, one of the problems of the church today is that people no longer want to kill preachers. That's quite the thought, isn't it? They do in other places. You see, we're, we no longer want to offend anyone. And granted, we're not out here to go, oh, I want to see how as many as people as I can offend on a Sunday morning. That's not what I look for. But the gospel both draws people to salvation, but it also offends the sinner who refuses to come. It is an offense to those who don't want to be saved. It is an offense to those who don't want to see their sin. Therefore, their response is one of bringing about persecution. Now, here it happened in Jerusalem. It happened in Judea, Samaria. And it's happening today in the uttermost parts of the earth. What you will not hear much of, but I encourage you to not only read the history of like Fox's Book of Martyrs or Jesus Freaks and others that tell the accounts of those who have died, but there's a monthly magazine, there's even a daily website for it that updates different things called Voice of the Martyrs. It tells you all about these different places that are being persecuted, the things that they're going through. If you remember Luke Kennedy, our, our, one of our missionaries that we support, he had expressed about someone uh, in Laos uh, who had preached the gospel in their village and had been persecuted. Their home was burned to the ground and their family had to leave. Their family was persecuted. He was beaten, jailed, the whole thing. And you know what else happened? After that man dealt with all that, you know what he did? He picked up his family, moved to the next village, and there he's now still preaching the gospel to another hostile world. You and I have to understand this, that suffering comes with the territory, and we find that real faith has real suffering, but real faith endures suffering. There's folks who say today, and I've heard it a million times, well, I'd, I would, I'd go to jail for the Lord. I'd die for Jesus. Most of us don't live every day for Him, let alone we would die for Him. 
I don't ever want to say that I would be the one willing to raise my hand to, to save your necks and I'll go, well, you know what? Put my head on the chopping block for them instead. That sounds real brave. But when the time comes, real faith endures. There was two men back in the day who were persecuted for their belief and they faced persecution. And they had a third man who was a part of this party, but he had originally uh, signed this sort of confession saying that he was renouncing his faith. And at seeing the faithfulness of his brothers whom he agreed with, what he did is then he recanted his recantation. He said, no, no, I, how can I do that? How can I betray my Lord? He then was then burned at the stake for his belief. And what he did is he took that right hand of his that signed that recantation and he put that down first in the flames and said, let this unworthy right hand, let it feel the flame. He knew and countless others have known what it means to suffer for Christ's sake. Sorensen writes, at, at times there is encouragement knowing that we are not the only ones to have undergone problems. Paul follows that tack in pointing out to the Thessalonian brethren how that they had become followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. In other words, they had followed in the footsteps of the churches of Judea, even as the, Thessalonians, even as the Thessalonian church had suffered, so had their brethren in the churches of Judea at the hand of the Jews suffered. It is a blessing to know that you're not the only one going through what you're going through. It is a blessing to know that you're not the only one struggling with the certain struggle that you're struggling with. It is a blessing to know that though we would be persecuted, that we would not be alone in being persecuted. I think about this, just the past couple of years with COVID and the whole shutdown and all the turmoil that's come with it, and church is still attempting to rebuild and it is great to talk to pastors and every single one of them knows exactly the same struggle of which every other pastor and every other church is dealing with. That, that's a blessing. But here the Thessalonian church, we find that their faith is shown, their real faith is shown, and that they are now partakers of the same suffering of which others who have suffered before them have dealt with. They've paved the way, if you will, the Judeans, and they faced it. Now he says, for you also have suffered like things from your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And it was the Jews at Thessalonica who began to persecute Paul, Silas, and Timothy and to drive them out of there. The Jews wanted to squash the gospel because it was changing lives. Because it preached that Jesus was the Christ. And what did they do with Him? They rejected Him, they reviled Him, and they wanted Him dead. Of course they wanted His message dead. Of course they wanted to persecute the church. As a matter of fact, Paul himself, if you remember, Paul himself was one of the first, earliest, and, and most... Uh, zealous of persecutors of the church. When Paul got saved, he was on his way with papers or to get papers to, to persecute the church all the more. He wanted to see Christians jailed. He wanted to see families uh, shut down from worshiping. He wanted to see churches demolished. He wanted to see this gospel get squashed. And instead, the gospel changed his life and then the gospel allowed him to then suffer for the glory of God. Here, he says, for ye brethren became followers. The idea of followers is the same understanding of becoming imitators of another. This same word is given in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And ye became followers of us. It is an idea of imitation. Thomas says, persecution inevitably arises from the outside when a Christian patterns his or her life after the Lord. 
The reason why many of us don't face persecution, one, because we live in a free country for now, right? It's amping up, don't you worry, right? But the reason why you and I don't even face some backlash from folks is because we're not near as loud with the gospel as the early church was or as other faithful followers, imitators of Christ are throughout this world. Now what we find is this truth, is that we're not just imitating Christ, we're not just imitating Paul, Silas, Timothy, we're not just imitating those who've gone before us, but because of our identity in Christ, that allows us then to imitate. Our identity allows our imitating of Christ, that is, becomes who we are. We are now both identified with Christ, and to be identified with Christ is not just to be identified with going, I love Jesus, right? Or I love the church, or I go to church. I love that when you ask someone if they're a Christian. Well, sure, yeah, of course. How? Why? Because uh, I, I go to church. And then you ask real questions like, what church? Who's the pastor? Uh, 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 well, anyways, uh, God bless you. <laughs> Gone. Real faith is different. Real faith lives like Christ. Real faith is identified not just with churchianity, but with real Christianity. And real Christianity is a suffering and a persecuted belief system. It as well shows us that to be identified with Christ, it is that we don't just identify with the good things about Jesus, like love your neighbor as yourself and love God and do unto others and the Beatitudes. No. We identify with Christ's suffering, with His death, but as well as with His resurrection. Remember, as Colossians told us over in chapter 3 that we're dead, but yet we're also risen with Christ. That is who we are. And we identify with His suffering. We identify with His life, with His death, with His uh, resurrection. Our whole identity is with Him. Now, we are imitators of Christ as we too now suffer for righteousness' sake. If they persecuted Christ... What makes us think that they would not want to persecute us? Jesus spent much of the last hours of his life teaching his disciples, telling them, the world is going to hate you. Not because they hate you, but because they hate me. And the reason why the world does not hate many Christians today is because most Christians don't look like Christ. They look like the world. Darkness doesn't hate darkness. Darkness loves it. When we look like the world, live like the world, act like the world, think like the world, go along with the world, or even tolerate, and this is a a big one in the church today, even tolerating the things and the ways of the world, it's no wonder we're not suffering or persecuted for Christ's sake. It's no wonder that we're not making much of a difference because there's not much of a difference being lived out. Today, now more than ever, we have to understand that Christ might well call us to suffer in this life for Him, but in so doing, there should be rejoicing. In the book of Acts, what we also find is that as the church started to be persecuted, you know what happened? As they were persecuted, they praised God that they were found worthy enough to suffer for Christ. When you read many of the accounts of those who have suffered or been killed for Christ's sake, all of them have, much of them rather, have said the same thing, which is, who am I that I could suffer for Jesus? Who am I that I could do such a thing? That the Lord would allow me to suffer for His sake. You and I don't view suffering that way. We need the right view of suffering in our life. Persecution. But the only way to get that is by having the right view of Jesus. Here, Edward writes, 
The Judean churches were persecuted by the Jewish community that saw in the Christian gospel a threat to the very essence of Judaism. Remember, what is the gospel? It is God's gracious message of salvation. That we're now under grace, no longer under the law. And for them, they wanted the law. For them, they didn't want grace. They wanted to go, I've kept these laws, I've memorized these scriptures, I've worn these clothes, I've not worn this, I've not done that, therefore I must be righteous. Wrong. Jesus' teachings were clear, the Old Testament, New Testament, aligned up and pointing that there are none righteous, no, not one, and that we're not saved by works of the law, but freely by His grace, by trusting in His provision, in His promise to us. Furthermore, we find, and lest anyone should think of the churches of God in Judea as Jewish synagogues, Paul adds, in Christ Jesus. The Thessalonian church and the Judean Christian churches are one in Christ. The Thessalonians had suffered the same things at the hands of their countrymen as the Judean churches had endured at the hands of unbelieving Jews. Just as these Jews had made life hard for the young churches in Judea, opponents of the church in Thessalonica had oppressed the church there. What we find is that there's no difference between the Jewish church or the Gentile church. There is one church, yet it's this. It, let's break it, let's put it maybe in our perspective. Today, say persecution breaks out in Grayson County. What are you and I going to do? We're going to pray for them, aren't we? Offer our support, offer our prayers, offer our provisions to help them along through this way. But then what would happen is if we start going through it? Well, then we're going to follow along in their footsteps, right? You and I don't like that sort of idea, neither do I, to be honest with you. It sounds awful to think of, but we find that it unites us together. We wouldn't go, oh, well, that's the church of Grayson County. We don't have to worry about that. They're separated. No, that, that's our flesh and our blood. That's the same body that we're a part of. We're a part of that as well. Morris writes here, the early believers saw persecution as inevitable. Because of that, they endured suffering. They endured persecution. But the only reason why they can endure suffering at the hands of their own countrymen is because of verse 13. If you don't receive the Word of God as the Word of God, you'll never endure. If you don't receive the Word of God as the Word of God, you'll never have real faith. If you don't receive the Word of God as the Word of God, when tough times come, you will flee, you will run, you will not stand firm. You will lose your voice. You will go with the flow. You will lay down your arms. You will lay down everything to avoid persecution. Real faith in Christ, identifying with Him, gives strength, gives courage when we have none. We today, in 2022, the church of Christ, the church of God, the bride of Christ, must see persecution as inevitable as well. If you wake up every morning and you go, today I'm going to suffer for Christ's sake, it's going to make it a whole lot easier. You say, what kind of mentality is that? It's the mentality which Jesus lived with. It's the mentality that the early church lived with. That if Christ would allow us to suffer for His name's sake, that is a blessing and an honor. What's our view of suffering? As we get into verse 15 and 16, he sort of ends the section by pointing out the persecutors. 
verse 13 and 14 is sort of an encouragement of those who are being persecuted, the church of Thessalonica. But then verses 15 and 16 sort of get at the persecutors. It says, Paul exposes the persecutors who are the zealous Jews who are continuing to try to stop the spread and effect of the gospel. Paul gives several major condemnations against the Jewish people themselves in regards to their persecuting ways. Paul here clearly, who was a Jew, was raised a Jew, was a Jew of Jews, was the top notch of top notch when it came to Judaism. But he no longer identifies with such. He identifies with Christ. Now he has an expressive desire, especially there in Romans, that his brethren, the Jews, would uh, be born again, would be saved. <coughs> now look here. He gives several condemnations in verses 15 and 16. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins all the way for the wrath has come upon them uh, to the uttermost. First, what did he accuse them of? And everything he accuses them of, they did, right? He says they killed the Lord Jesus. They killed their own prophets. Think about that. They persecuted their own people who, who preached the, the gospel, who preached repentance. Persecuted the apostles and the early church. They displeased God in their belief and practices. And they were contrary or against all others who were not Jewish. They didn't want the Gentiles to be saved. They didn't want the Gentiles to have the opportunity to even be saved. They called them and still viewed them. And this was a, a problem in the early church. They still viewed them as, as outsiders. They still viewed them as, as dogs and as, as unclean. Yet God said the gospel's for them too. Salvation's for them too. Now this accusations of which Paul is giving here is very similar to Peter's message there on the day of Pentecost. How they were the ones who had persecuted. They were the ones who had, had done all these wicked things against Christ and against church and that they needed to repent. And he calls them to the same thing here. Now I want to look here at verse 16 because we clearly see how they killed Jesus. They, they persecuted their own prophets. They persecuted the apostles and the church. They pleased not God. They are contrary to all men because they had rejected him. Unbelief does those things. Forbidding us to speak to Gentiles that they might be saved. And then here, to fill up their sins always. I want to look at that for a moment. The word picture of heap up or fill to the fullest idea points to a well-defined limit of sin appointed by divine decree. When this point is reached, divine chastisement is inevitable. After generations of repeated apostasies and rebellion, Israel had arrived. The climax had come especially with rejection of the Messiah himself and their already settled judgment was was biding its time until further consequences were released. This reminds us much of what Romans 1-3 through tell us. Romans 1 is essentially this. All Gentiles and pagans, guilty. Romans 2, the Jews are just as guilty. Chapter 3, all are guilty. It does not matter what you identify with. It doesn't matter where you come from. All stand guilty before God. And this is why there is only hope in Christ Jesus for salvation, forgiveness of sins. Here, what we see is that they were literally heaping wrath upon wrath. Sin upon sin. It was piling up and overflowing. Sorensen writes, 
Furthermore, they had on more than one occasion forbidden the church to preach to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This was evident in Acts 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 40, at Jerusalem, as well as the Jews at Thessalonica, recorded in Acts 17, verse 5 and 13. Paul goes on to note how that in so doing, these hardened Jews were continuing to fill their cup with sin. Moreover, for this cause, God's wrath would come upon them to the uttermost. The latter, it very well may be prophetic of what would befall the Jewish nation in AD 70 when Titus utterly destroyed Jerusalem and their distorted practice of Judaism. Jerusalem would fall in AD 70, would be absolutely crushed and, and destroyed. It would never be the same. There would be a dispersion of which they did not truly return back to their land until less than 100 years ago. This is why Israel is so important with prophecy, and especially that of the future. It centers around them and what Christ is doing to, to draw them back to Himself so that when He comes at His second coming, it will be revealed that this is the Christ. It says that Israel will be born, and the day is the idea. But they look at Christ right now, and they still reject to this day. They still need that same Christ to be saved, but many of them still refuse to believe that He came and He died and He rose again. They have gone the same way that much of the pagan world has gone. They've gone the way of religion and even to the point of many of them partnering with, with Muslims and, and other parts of, of the world in this sort of ecumenical thing. That's end time sort of mentality of drawing all people together. When you hear people talking about world peace and world unity and let's just hold hands and just put, put down some of these doctrines and things and things that divide us, what you'll find is that is the way of Antichrist. That is the doctrine of Antichrist. It is telling that all religions are the same. They're not. Only one has a Savior who came, literally, died, literally, and rose again, literally, and is coming back again one day, literally. Nothing else has that. Nothing else can have that. But here, what Paul is getting at is that the Jews, much like throughout their history, have this horrible pattern of unbelief. Unbelief brings cursing and judgment is the idea. And they've heaped it upon themselves. And now it's running over. It's full to the brim. The Jews' history throughout all their history is one of great rejection and persecution because of unbelief, even still to this day. But nevertheless, as Green writes, but at the end of the day, we must always remember that God is the judge of all humanity, both of the Jews and of the Gentiles. And that very judge is the one who is the Savior who extends His hand to both the Jew and the Gentile. All should respond. None should resist. Both the divine call and warning are clear. So what's the answer to the persecuted church? Come to Christ. Keep seeking Him. Keep trusting Him. What is the call to the persecutor, the Jewish people. Come to Christ and live. When we come to Christ, what we might face is persecution and suffering, but we will never face it by ourselves. Matter of fact, even the least bit or even the most amount of suffering you could ever face, it will still be nothing compared to what Christ suffered for you, your sins and mine. And we must understand that there is a great reward for suffering and being persecuted for Christ's sake. As we wrap up this section, what Paul is doing here is he is showing how they accepted the gospel 
there in the early portions of this passage. And because of their acceptance of the gospel and accepting the very word of God as the word of God, it gave them real faith and their real faith and the word of God produced a work and that work was enduring was suffering, persecution. It was being identified in Christ and in Christ alone. If you want to know what church should look like or the Christian life should look like, it's right there. What's our view of suffering? What's our view of our Savior? What's our life look like right now? If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? May we live our lives for Christ, for His glory, for the sake of the Gospel. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this time. We're grateful that we could meet with You and You with us and to study Your Word. I pray, Lord, that now You would uh, just prepare our hearts, Lord, uh, Lord, to, to suffer for You, but as well now today that You would unite us together in Christ, that You would draw us together, that we would praise Your name, that we would sing with our whole heart unto You, that we would be able to, to give You glory and honor. Lord, that today that You would meet with Your people through the, the, the preaching of Your Word and through the, the power of Your Spirit, Lord, that, that souls would, would be saved, lives would be changed. Lord, that each of us would come today and receive all that we need in Christ and in His Word. Lord, we love You. Thank You for this time. Prepare us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, shall we take a pause for the calls? We got a minute.